Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. Joining us today is Andrea Jung, President and CEO of Grameen America. If you know anything about them, they're the fastest growing microfinance organization in the United States. And Eugene Danilkas, the co-founder and CEO of Mambu, the core engine powering digital first banking and lending. So we're going to be discussing how the partnership between Mambu and Grameen has powered each other's growth and improved the lives of underserved and underbanked customers. And where are you guys both uh, coming to us from today? Which part of, uh, I know, uh, Andrea, you said you're in New Jersey, right? Uh, New York based. Yes, um, but uh, we are normally based in the New York area. Fantastic. And Eugene, yourself? Uh, I'm calling from an island in north of Holland right now. I've actually been based in Amsterdam for the last year and a half, and I'm spending this little week yesterday up in the very north, so close to the North Sea here, northern Europe. Awesome. Very cool. I I was going to see if you were at the International Space Station right now testing out the software, but no, obviously not. But no, that was uh, that's next week. Next week. Did you see SN11, the uh, rapid unscheduled disassembly today? And it was. Uh, No, I did not actually. Yeah. So when they tried to restart, they had a had a problem with one of the the Raptors. So uh, anyway, uh, moving on. Moving on. First of all, Andrea, um, you know, Grameen has obviously a storied history from uh, the work of uh, Muhammad Yunus back in April 2014. Um, of course, in Grameen's early days, what was really significant of um, Grameen's work uh, on the subcontinent was that particularly strong in offering microloans to women and a really interesting statistic that I recall from the early days of Grameen is that Grameen also had a much lower NPL as a result of the fact that they lent to women. So using that to sort of start off, um, can I ask, um, you know, what's the lending profile like in the United States and are you seeing sort of similar benefits of uh, investing in lower to middle income um, women in um, the United States uh, like like you did offshore? Yeah, thanks, Brett. Um, The answer is yes and yes, meaning, you know, we were founded in the United States in 2008. Um, interestingly, in the last global debt crisis, didn't have the health aspect to it that we're facing now in 2020 and 2021 with COVID-19. But uh, the organization was founded based on really the track record and the vision of the Grameen Bank, you know, decades ago before that in Bangladesh. Uh, Interestingly, microfinance, which worldwide had become a real opportunity, particularly to help women 
in their pathway out of poverty uh, was perceived as something for, as you mentioned, the, the emerging markets, for Bangladesh, for India. Right. Right. And so there was a lot of skepticism about whether would it work in the, you know, in the first world markets, in the, you know, uh, the rich, the rich nation of the United States. Um, and interestingly founded in 2008 in Jackson Heights, Queens in New York, just, you know, kind of a couple miles from Wall Street. So it's sort of at the center of the financial capital markets, the question and skepticism of would microfinance work um, and would the Grameen program work in the U.S.? Uh, you know, almost 13 years later, I think we're here to say the answer is clearly yes. Clearly, you know, over 130,000 women with um, with extraordinary number of loans. I mean, I think we've given out 628,000 loans uh, to women, and the NPL. To your point, I mean, it's over 99 percent has been the repayment rate over more than a decade across 15 cities and 23 locations, which I think just speaks to the extraordinary power of the model, but most in, most importantly, the members themselves. Um, you know, we've long believed that the, the opportunity for financial inclusion, the opportunity for access to capital should be regardless of gender, of race, of income level. And so Grameen was founded on offering women, low-income women, 99% um, of our women are women of color, but giving them the opportunity to have equal access to uh, not just capital, but financial training, the opportunity to build a credit score, the opportunity to have asset building with uh, weekly savings. Um, and all of this has proven to really be a pathway for them into financial inclusion, which was not offered, unfortunately, even pre-2008. And then after the debt crisis here in the United States, if you were a low-income woman, uh, in particular, entrepreneur looking to get access to capital, it almost became impossible, um, with the exception of usury rates and, and other yeah, yeah. that we really uh, wanted to offer, an uh, you know, an alternative to. So that's how Grameen America was born. In respect to the science of why women are so good at managing credit and lending, you know, I mean, we've seen that pattern with, with Grameen's portfolio. What is it that makes women um, much lower likely default candidates compared with uh, their male counterparts? Uh, I think there's been a, a few aspects of the alchemy of the program. Um, but if I just start and we look back at the history, even in, you know, original Grameen days where loans to men at the Grameen Bank in, in, in the earliest days performed much worse than loans to women. I think part of it was Brett, the fact that for a lot of the men, it was just another loan product. They had access right. to it. So it was one of five. And the loyalty and the gratitude to the organization, it really didn't stand out versus something else. So you're, you're balancing you know, a different debt burden and debt load. For the women who, if you go all the way back again, you know, 40 plus years ago in Bangladesh, they were told, come back with your husband if they went to a bank to get a loan. Crazy, right? Women were essentially shut out of the capital market access. And so to have an organization that trusts you when everyone else is denying you a loan, the power of that engendered in trust and loyalty, you know, it's, it's priceless, as they say. So the Grameen America model 
is that, um, you know, we're, we're trusting our members. I think we are probably the only organization where a credit score is an output of the program, but not a required input. They're non-collateralized loans. Um, and many of these women have no credit score or a poor credit score when they come. So they would be not denied anywhere else. And the fact that Grameen wants to help them, will give them capital and help them build that credit. Um, and produces enormous loyalty. Gratitude is worth everything. Um, the second thing is that one of the requirements of the program, benefits of the program, uh, I would say, is a weekly training session, a weekly meeting with their relationship managers. Um, and this happens in community. Um, we can talk later because right now this is happening on Zoom uh, because obviously of social distancing and the world post-March 2020. But nonetheless, the community of other women other women entrepreneurs and the ability to share, to learn, um, you know, entrepreneurship's lonely and it's scary. And so to be able to have 25 or 30 other women doing different businesses, but all being able to help in a social capital model, that has been also integrally part of this, you know, extraordinary benefit to them and also loan performance. Yeah, I, I want to get to Mambu and Eugene and, and your role here, but just, just quickly before that, just so people are clear, um, for those that may not be familiar with the term, what is a social capital model? So a social capital model at Grameen means that um, it's, it's a relationship-based model. Um, right. And we have centres and groups of five women entrepreneurs together. Um, they join a group of five. Uh, and those that, that group is part of a center of other groups. So there can often be five or six groups. So 25, 30 other entrepreneurs. Um, I may be doing a, a, a So they, it, It's almost like an incubator style um, teaming. Absolutely. And I would say to you, even before the pandemic, um, the, the support of each other, uh, the learnings from each other is extraordinary. Um, and then certainly during the pandemic, uh, in a moment of isolation, just being able to have the comfort and the support of other entrepreneurs during obviously an extraordinarily difficult time has been invaluable. Great. All right. Well, let's uh, let's get Eugene to dive in here. Um, Eugene, obviously, there's a um, halo effect of uh, working with someone like Grameen, but um, you know, clearly, uh, digital um, is a big part of the financial inclusion formula here, particularly during the pandemic. But you know, uh, also in terms of access previously, um, you know, one of the things we've observed. More broadly in the U.S. is that, you know, financial inclusion, surprisingly, the U.S. doesn't do so good on that. About 20% or between 20 and 25% of, of households are underbanked in the United States. And so um, access digitally that um, allows, um, you know, as uh, Andrea was, was discussing, um, you know, alternate credit scoring models and alternate engagement models and things like that. Can you talk to us about what Mambu has learned during this process in terms of working with Grameen. Has it changed your product at all, particularly uh, um, around the theme of inclusiveness? I think around inclusiveness, it really kind of reconfirmed a lot what we believed in when we started uh, when we started the company, because we really believed that financial inclusion had a lot to gain, both in terms of its effectiveness of existing operations to serve the customers, but also the fact that you still had so many more 
customers that needed uh, to be reached with different technology and different products and services that we felt like you know financial inclusion was really only going to be able to scratch the service of the impact they wanted to have unless it like really fully embraced technology um and I think the working with Grameen uh, over the years has kind of helped to really reconfirm that because I think it was really one of the organizations from all of the you know financial inclusion organizations that we work with that really kind of embraced technology as a really key enabler of the business where others, I think in the past might have seen it more of as a supporting function. And I think what I've seen the, the team at Grameen really do is they think about technology and financial inclusion at the same level. So instead of thinking what technology can we use to better reach our customers to create additional products and services and make the lives of our customers easier and actually looking at technology opportunities to potentially open up new ways of providing services or better services and also starting with the same questions from the customer side in terms of you know what products do do they need what are their pain points of interaction and how can we use technology to to solve them and i think starting with those conversations from both uh from both ends you can really see an approach where there's a close partnership of, you know, financial inclusion and technology. And obviously you've seen that in, in tremendous results and the impact that Grameen has had over the years. And it really kind of reconfirmed a little bit of that, the philosophy that we had when we when we started working on Mambu. Yes, tremendously important that it's sort of a team effort from the regulator down, really. So uh, that's uh, that's fantastic. Can you talk about how COVID affected operations in the US and, um, you know, what your strategy there was? You've already spoken about the fact that the uh, the social aspect brought to, together people on Zoom and so forth. Sure. Um, just to bridge it, uh, Brett, though, I, I would just say that had we, all my answers about how we fared, uh, how Grameen America fared during COVID and how our members fared would would not even be a conversation had we not had not being on Mambu, right? Not being on Mambu, not having you know this the famous you know fix the roof while the sun is shining. We right. I remember talking to uh, Professor Yunus early on in the pandemic, and he was talking about the fact that microfinance is the line share of money movement in a lot of the towns and villages in many. Um, emerging markets, and that the social distancing, uh, stay-at-home orders basically shut down money movement in part Mm -hmm. of the world. Had we not invested, um, you know, and we had started this obviously in 2013, uh, but had we not invested in not just the Mambu technology, but what Mambu allowed us to do, which was digitize the entire platform, um, we too would have had to pause um, but instead, we've been able to really run the entire loan program, um, both dispersing as well as getting repayments from our members, you know, 100% virtually without having to see a single one of them for an entire year, which is pretty amazing. Um, but just to your original question, how the impact has been, you know, I would just say to two words. I mean, on one hand, heartbreaking, and on the other hand, just unbelievably inspiring. Heartbreaking in that I think we all know that the uh, low-income um, communities have been disproportionately affected, and our members were no exception, both from a health point of view as well as an economic point of view. You know, micro-businesses uh, and small businesses particularly hurt, and those run by women 
particularly unable to access government funding, et cetera. So, you know, it we we are clearly dealing with the current reality uh, that the pandemic since March of 2020 has been, you know, a, a, a large impact and, and a significant pivot for, for many, many of our members. Um, I would say, though, the inspiring aspect is that uh, they have really learned to pivot their businesses. Um, you know, food service, you know, food service members are turning it into catering and they're using Grubhub platforms. 25% of our members, you know, incorporated home deliveries. Uh, we have a lot of hair and beauty salon businesses and they were really hard hit, but a lot of those members just really started to have Zoom consultations to teach people how to, you know, cut hair themselves and wow. or perform services in outdoor spaces if the weather uh, permitted. You know, we have tailoring shops who started selling masks and making masks. So uh, the resilience is the word I guess I would use was yeah. and continues to be pretty extraordinarily, uh, but lucky. And I guess, you know, Eugene will talk more about it, but had we not been able to pivot very quickly to complete virtual operations, uh, and if we had we not had Mambu as the, as the base for that, you know, years before, it would have been a struggle to just at least service yeah. them and get them that, you know, disbursement in three minutes if they needed it without having to hand deliver them a check. So, yeah. Now, Eugene, um, you know, was was Grameen one of your first North American customers? Have I got that right? Right, yes, yeah. I think we've had probably, I think we worked into together in 2013. So by then we must have had, I'm not sure, probably about 40 customers or so, I guess, around the world. But in North America, it was definitely the first. Awesome. Um, and, um, I, you know, you recently, um, you know, had to be fairly agile when it came to Wirecard. Um, you know, you guys uh, pivoted there um, pretty quickly. Can can you talk about how you're able to deal with those types of issues uh, as an organization in terms of agility and your ability to, to pivot? Well, the Wirecard didn't affect us uh, directly because Wirecard was neither a customer nor a partner of ours. But, of course, we saw a lot of kind of fallout effects of that. Of course, customers who might have been using Wirecard or had to actually switch away from it. And I believe, actually, Andrea, you also had a belief for relationship with Wirecard as well, right, for one of your uh, debit card products, if I remember right. So it was actually well, the Wirecard didn't affect us directly as a business, but we saw, of course, customers affected by that. And right. we saw the, how they had to leverage the platform and the, and the agility that Andrea was describing to be able to make technological or business changes as a result of what was happening to Wirecard. I mean, in the old days, to switch a payment processor was an 18-month to two-year process, right? So, um, Andrea, um, you know, it, it, were you guys affected by that? We were. We had to pivot pretty quickly. Um, but we were able to do it in in a matter of not months but weeks, so we were fine. That's pretty. That's pretty impressive. So, um, uh, Andrea, would you mind if I ask you about um, you know Mackenzie Scott, um, uh, ex Ms. Bezos? She recently has been very active, of course, uh, um, uh, from her philanthropic efforts uh, exceeded six billion dollars uh, in in twenty twenty alone. Um, you know, so pretty impressive. But um, in in particular, your economic relief and recovery fund. Um, can you talk about her involvement in that? Sure. Uh, you know, I think that what Mackenzie Scott is doing in terms of sort of redefining philanthropy 
is, is so inspiring. Um, and, and the, uh, not just the amount, uh, the sheer um, amount that she has given back to, uh, many, many organizations over the past year. But, um, I think the, the focus on, on the underserved, um, on women, et cetera, has certainly been something that, you know, I think is making a, a sizable material impact, you know, in the space. We were extraordinarily fortunate to receive a $25 million uh, unrestricted gift from McKenzie to really help us with the relief and recovery period that, um, you know, the single largest uh, philanthropic gift that Grameen America has received in our in our 12 year history. And we are you know, fantastic. not only extraordinarily grateful, but I, I think uh, able to put it to good use. Our expansion plans uh, have been aggressive and bold. We intend to you know, double the number of cities over the next several years, um, expand into new new areas, new strategies. And this gift is really helping us do that. So, Gene, before I wrap up, um, you know, I've got to ask this question. I'm sure you saw it coming. Is what did working on the International Space Station control software teach you that has helped you build core systems for digitally enabled banks? It's about uh, the end-to-end process of building mission-critical systems at the end of the day, right? I mean, if we're building a mission-critical platform that customers like Ramin and uh, Tier 1 banks around the world and telcos and others, and, you know, our customers themselves serve 35 million end customers all together right now. So we have a pretty mission-critical platform from our perspective, and, of course, that's just going to grow over the next couple of years. So um, when you were working on a mission-critical system on the International Space Station, when you don't really have any room for errors, because these are multi-billion dollar projects and modules and in space, you usually only get one chance to get something right. Uh, I think I learned a couple of things about how to build mission critical systems and was able to apply that to the banking and uh, lending world. Absolutely. And um, just um, before we, we wrap up uh, uh, as well, Andrea, um, you know, can you talk about um, just quickly um, sort of the diversity approach you have or, you know, uh, across different segments of, uh, you know, the, 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 the women of America? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'll just say that this has certainly put a, a lens, this moment in, in the United States, but the world as well on um, not just gender uh, inequity, but racial inequity. And we are uh, very excited to be launching a, an amplification initiative, if you would, and it's elevating black women entrepreneurs across the United States. Uh, our goal is to enter even more, you know, kind of predominantly underserved black communities uh, across the US uh, and hopefully reach over the next 10 years, 70,000 members. Uh, and, and allow them that, to have this, the access to capital. It's just, it's interesting Phenomenal. when you look at all all of the groups. On yeah, the given the challenges that those groups face uh, in 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 the U.S. today, that's uh, um, obviously laudable. Um, just, I, I, we're running out of time here, so just quickly, Eugene. Um, you know, where do people go to find out more about Mambu and um, the work you're doing with organizations like Grameen? Yeah, definitely check out our website at mamu.com. We have also quite a long story going much deeper into our relationship with Grameen about how it started, what we accomplished together. So if you want to have quite a deep dive into our relationship, then go to our website and then check out the Grameen Mamu case study on there. 
Fantastic. And Andrea, how can people get involved in Grameen America's mission? Yeah, GrameenAmerica.org. Um, and, uh, you know, if you go onto that site, uh, our annual report is there with uh, stories, again, like Eugene said, of, of a lot of our partnerships and, you know, the many organizations that have helped us get to where we are today. Fantastic. I feel like we've only scratched the surface here, but I um, am grateful for you two guys joining the show today and, uh, you know, the, the incredible work that's been done at Grameen America. It's uh, really important work. And again, um, you know, thank you, Andrea, for sharing your success success story there. Um, you've been listening to uh, Eugene Danicus, the co-founder and CEO of Mambu, and Andrea Jung, who's the uh, president and CEO of Grameen America. Uh, check out uh, what they're doing. It's really interesting. You're listening to Breaking Banks. We will be right back after the break with our old friend, Lord Mayor William Russell, live from London, talking to us about the Khalifa Report and some other things there. But stay tuned for our next segment featuring the Honourable Lord Mayor of London. We'll be back right after this break. Today's Breaking Banks podcast is brought to you by Plaid. More consumers than ever before are relying on digital finance for their everyday lives. As financial institutions, we know you want to meet your customers where they are and support safe and reliable experiences, especially when it comes to managing their money. That's why Plaid built Plaid Exchange, a customizable API solution that helps support your data access needs. Plaid Exchange makes it easy for financial institutions of all shapes and sizes to give users reliable and secure access to their financial data. And best of all, with Plaid Exchange, you can have peace of mind knowing that Plaid's industry expertise and security technology guarantees your customers are safe and secure. To learn more about Plaid Exchange, reach out to one of our experts at plaid.com slash plaid dash exchange that's plaid.com slash plaid dash exchange the breaking banks europe podcast brings you european unicorns startups founders regulators and leaders all innovating in the rapidly evolving fintech scene hi i'm matteo rizzi I am Ajit Tripathi. This is Matthias Kröner. I'm Megan Johnson. I am Paolo Cironi. I'm Nina Mohanty. Join us and some of the world's most well-known hosts and influencers in fintech as we bring you insights into European fintech. Find us wherever you normally listen to your podcasts or at provoke.fm. Welcome back to Breaking Banks. Joining us back on the show, he's becoming somewhat of a regular guest, actually, is the Lord Mayor of London, William Russell. Uh, Lord Mayor, welcome back to Breaking Banks. Thank you for having me. And as you know, Brett, um, I'm in my second year. Absolutely. Your, your second term. It's, it's fantastic. Second so, term. Last time that happened was 1860, 1861. Long time ago. There you ago. go. Well, do you think you'll get a third term and then you can break all the records? Um, I, I, I get very, uh, my wife gets very cross with me, but I always say the divorce bill would be too much if I had a third there term. There you go. All right. Well, that makes sense. I understand that completely. <laughs> um, so there's a lot of uh, a, a lot of stuff happening in the UK at the moment. The uh, vaccine rollout is uh, starting to, to uh, happen with uh, some intensity. 
Um, yeah, how how I, is my, the feeling in London City these days? Oh, you had the vaccine? So, so I had it on Friday, uh, I, and I had the AstraZeneca one, the Oxford one, proudly. Um, and uh, look, I mean, it's, hap- it's happening fast. We're, we're optimistic about how we can start to think about bringing, uh, bringing back people to the City of London. Um, if anything, the City of London has been almost too successful working from home. That transition has worked very well. Um, but I think confidence will grow. Uh, we've got certain sort of dates and we're doing a, a phasing campaign, uh, a reopening campaign around the square mile. Uh, and, you know, in, and also we, we passed through uh, Common Council uh, just last week. Uh, a motion to spend up to up to fifty million pounds to help all the SMEs within the square mile, the City of London, yes. not the whole of London, because we that would be too much. But you know, a lot of it's around hospitality uh, SMEs. I, I remind people, ninety nine percent of the businesses in the City of London are SMEs. People immediately think, "Oh, I had no idea," but that is the case. It's actually not uncommon for that to be the situation no. in most cities. You know, they're the lifeblood of. Uh, of the city. Um, it does feel different though, doesn't it? It does feel mm-hmm. like there's an energy building for us to return back to not necessarily the old normal because things yeah. will never be the same, but uh, people are um, you're chafing at the bit to get yes. back into action, I feel. So, um, yeah, pent up um, demand. Exactly. In fact, um, you know, the economists I speak to, uh, you know, the investment analysts say exactly that. We, we've yeah. got a lot of pent up uh, consumption demand and things like that. People are just waiting for the starting gates to open. So, um, and and in terms of fintech policy, you've had uh, you've had some fairly significant um, changes or I- insights. Particularly, you had the Khalifa report released uh, recently. Um, so, tell. T- Tell us about the the high level uh, review of UK fintech and sort of what that means um, for when so, things do start to come back. Yeah, um, look, I mean, it, it, you you know about the success of fintech in the UK. I talk about uh, in a positive terms that the uh, the UK is the centre of, of fintech in the world. London uh, described in the Khalifa review as the super hub, uh, but there are lots of other hubs. Uh, around the country. And that's what's so exciting. I remind people there are 146 fintechs in Scotland alone and 1,600 fintechs in total. But Ron Khalifa, who spent a a long time doing the review, uh, as you know, is a past CEO of WorldPay and knows a lot about it. Uh, And in a way, uh, COVID delayed his timing, but in a way also helped him because of the digitization, how fintech really came to the fore uh, during... um, uh, during COVID-19. And, um, you know, the UK, we needed to come up with something where, you know, what's what's the next stage? We, uh, we don't, we want to keep the momentum going. And it's a compliment to to all the uh, many other countries in the world and cities in the world that, you know, uh, they're, they're, they're catching up and they're doing a good job too. And FinTech is here to stay, as you know. Um, and as I also know, you and I have discussed it, um, you know, I, I really think it should be called Tech Fin. But anyway, it is FinTech. And underneath that, you've got InsureTech, RegTech, all the other areas, and now GreenTech coming into the fore. But, uh, you know, we, we've got 10% of global market share and 11 billion in revenue in the UK um, and $4.1 billion um, dollars uh, was invested into UK fintech uh, in 2020, which is more than five times all the other European countries, which is a, a good confidence booster as we leave Europe, uh, Brett. So, look, I, I think it, it, it's it's a good. It was a good opportunity. 
but also, I would say, having the Lord Hill review about two weeks after that was perfect timing because it reinforced a lot of the things that I'm, we've been saying about listings. Uh, and this is a big opportunity for us to uh, to grow the listings. And you've seen Deliveroo have announced they're going to list on the uh, London Stock Exchange. You know, we know that in the pipeline, there's potentially Wise, which was the old transfer Wise. There's Dark Trace. You know, we've got some exciting companies wanting to come to the market. And so the timing couldn't have been better, really. Uh, it's pretty interesting because obviously there's a few Chinese fintechs right now that are looking to list. They've had some issues like uh, Ant Group and, uh, you know, we've seen some action um, taken with, with Tencent uh, similar to Ant in respect to a financial holding company or a bank holding company there. Um, but these are going to be some very big IPOs. So I think, you know, maybe um, that's, again, one of the measures we're going to start looking at uh, for success of a fintech hub is uh, how many unicorns do they get to get to an IPO exit? Because ultimately that's that's one of the measures which we've sort of been waiting for in FinTech, haven't we? You know, sitting there looking at Monzo and Revolut and when are they going to IPO? What do you think? Well, I'm, I, I think I like to think sometime in the future and you saw the news on Starling Bank and, and the uh, the wonderful Anne's Anne Bowden. And, what, yeah. and Anne's done great and I'm sure you've chatted to her. So look, you're absolutely right. We're in that position now where changing a, 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 the, the you know the uh, the dual structure and the the percentage share timing couldn't have been better. So uh, and you know there are a few. The key thing is that there are there are a few people who weren't quite sure, but we are not trying to you know deregulate down to a. To, to, to take standards down. Uh, what we're trying to do is be more flexible. Uh, and so it's, it is attractive for, for many fintech companies to, as you say, list in, in what is the fintech, fintech hub. Um, and um, I think that it's great. And, um, you know, the Cleef Review has, is, 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 uh, is as quoted by uh, Christine Fays, who was uh, Lend Invest, is a seminal moment for the fintech sector in the UK. I saw now, that. I saw that. Uh, we've got to deliver on the recommendations of the report. So it's all very well, as you know, Brett, talking about it. Now we've got to deliver. And the one that I'm particularly excited about, I have to say, is the uh, is the Centre for Innovation and, and Technology, which uh, I, I think that could really help us a great deal. And you, read, you know quantum computing is coming next. You know, I think the UK and government has worked out that tech is critical over the next five to 10 years, and we've got an advantage around, around fintech. Yeah, I mean, Oxford's doing some great stuff with quantum yes. computing well, um, as an example. And, and, you know, I would throw life sciences in there, but that's not really my area. But, we're, mm. you know, with the vaccine, that is part of that too. So mm. life sciences, healthcare, um, fintech are something that now we're, uh, we're on, uh, on our own um, out of the EU. You know, we, could, we need to really push forward on these things. And then we can talk about green as well, but that's also the other opportunity. So um, the Khalifa report, um, I love that you've got T.S. Anil uh, from uh, Anil from uh, Monzo. You've got Nick from uh, Revolut in the report making their comments, yeah. as well as uh, Christian. But um, it talks about three broad prizes or benefits from this commitment to fintech, uh, uh, you know, across the UK. It talks about jobs. We've discussed that previously. It talks about trade. But one that I thought was interesting is inclusion and recovery was uh, was um, 
bought out. So um, how do you think, um, you know, at a time when since 1990, uh, you know, every day since 1990, I think this is the famous quote that a bank branch in in the UK is closed somewhere. And this trend is happening also, of course, in the United States. um, And it's happening globally because, you know, we've got bank accounts in our phones. Now we don't need to go to branches as much, but that does tend to also complicate the inclusiveness aspect. So how are you finding fintech? You mentioned uh, Wise, uh, you know, previously known as TransferWise, and others as an example. But how how are you? How has um, fintech changed the inclusion um, formula in in the UK? Do you think? Well, um, so I, I think it, it, we've got further to go. We aren't where we'd like, to, but it, it, the financial inclusion. Everyone has one of these, you know, smartphone that I've got. Uh, the majority of people uh, were spending a huge, you're going to hear in the next month or so uh, about how much money BT is going to spend on broadband. We've worked out we need, we need to go that the next stage. So everyone has the internet. Um, and so that, that in itself is where we want to get to. But it's also very much part of the leveling up agenda that this government has. And don't underestimate what they're trying to do. You've just seen announcements, you know, the Treasury are moving people to Darlington in Yorkshire. or old, uh, And then you've got Leeds have just announced something that's happening there. At Manchester, I think that I read today that transport, the transport uh, department are moving people up to Manchester. The leveling up agenda is really critical. Uh, and that, in a way, is has already happened a bit with fintech. Uh, and um, I go on virtual trips around the country, and I went to Birmingham just two weeks ago. Brett, I mean, it's incredible the things going on in Birmingham. I mean, it's a really dynamic My city. My mum was a bronze. That's, uh, right, that's great. Yeah. And that's before HS2 is even finished. Um, so you can already yeah. see the excitement that's going going on. And what has really changed is that all these big cities, Leeds, and I'm a Durham alumnus, but let me put Durham and Newcastle in there, but Leeds and Manchester, for example, and Birmingham particularly, all the universities are hanging on to their talent. Here's a stat I got out of Birmingham on my trip. 55% of the graduates are now staying in Birmingham. Now, when I left Durham, we all came to London. So the other thing I would say that was mentioned in the Cleaver Review and mentioned uh, in uh, in the budget a week or two later, uh, a week later was immigration visas. So we need right. special immigration visas for skilled workers. And, you know, I actually think a lot of that may be more for London than for the rest of the region yeah. because they're hanging on to their talent. And the final thing I'll say is that every company, whether it's a fintech startup and TransferWise will confirm this or Wise, one of the reasons why they either double down or set up in London or in the UK is because we have the global talent. And as long as that talent stays in the UK, we'll still be very successful in fintech and tech and, and many other industries. Uh, uh, well, I know the uh, the wise guys personally, um, having yeah. been with them when they were just a, a wee startup um, before they had this uh, 800-pound uh, unicorn gorilla, right? But uh, um, I, I did notice that foreign talent represents uh, about 42% of UK tech employees um, and um, a big um, reskilling opportunity for the UK workforce. Um, It's estimated that 90% of the UK workforce will need to be reskilled by 2030. That's from um, the Learning for Life reports, cbi.org. 
um, in the UK. Yeah. Um, but uh, uh, so it would appear that, um, you know, this is a big opportunity for those outlying cities, Manchester, Birmingham, et cetera, <laughs> in terms of... Uh, and Cardiff and Northern relevance. Ireland. I mean, right. exactly. I mean, in Belfast, there's a wonderful company called Fintrue that I always mention, which is a incredible, employs 300 people, quite a lot of them in Derry, Londonderry, mm-hmm. near Coleraine. So, um, you know, what does a reskilling program of that scale look like? It's not just uh, fintech, obviously. No, I mean that, that's a, that's a very good question, and I think that's part of the the action plan that needs to be be be, be discussed. I mean, you know, we'll get the the, the new visa stream. To me, is a is a is a is a no brainer, um, and you get that access, and then. Uh, um, you know, uh, as far as the upskilling, you know, we need to do that. And that's something, it's a recommendation. Uh, and that needs to be taken up with, 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 uh, with government. Uh, and, um, and hopefully that will be, uh, but also, um, you know, it's also part of, of, of also the, uh, the supporting, you know, work placements and, you know, various things, apprenticeships that we need to do a better job at um, around the younger generation coming through. I mean, at the moment, it's, it's 75,000 people we think are employed in fintech and it will go north of 100,000 by 2030. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it comes back to my point, uh, Brett, is that, you know, we, we yeah, Ron has written this, this wonderful review. We now need to deliver on it. Um, and um, hopefully, uh, having had it, you know, backed, and, and and we were the secretariat of the City of London Corporation, but the Treasury very much said we want this review. So now we'll hopefully, uh, hopefully get it um, uh, get it set up. Uh, 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 the various bits that need to be done to deliver it. I'm just looking up a stat from my new book, actually. Okay. We're talking. Tell me about your new book, Brett. Well, so I, you know, I didn't want to make this a plug for the book, but um, (laughs) it's called, it's called the rise of techno socialism. Um, Okay. So I think you, I should, I'll send you an advanced copy. Hopefully you'll uh, you'll find some interest in it, but I was looking, um, it's actually quite interesting that um, uh, this is a figure from, from the research. Um, This is research that was published in September, 2018. And it's from the American Enterprise Institute. And um, it looks at US and UK economic growth from 1990 to 2015. And it, it, it uh, reports that um, absent immigration, inbound talent coming into the US, their GDP growth would have been 15 percentage points lower over that period. And for the UK, 20 percentage points lower without that immigration and the EU even higher. Um, And so, um, you know, strategic immigration, that's going to become, I think, a big differentiator for the 21st century. I totally agree with you. And, And that's where, in a way, you know, London is an expensive city, no doubt about it. It's yeah. a wonderful city, as you know. But if you're coming in from elsewhere in the world, one of the places you would want to go and work potentially is London. So that's why this immigration visa, I think, in a way, will benefit uh, London. Um, but it will benefit other cities as well. But I think other cities, as I say, are retaining a lot of their talent. Um, no, it is. And, 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 and I think with what's happened with COVID and what's happened with Brexit, a number of people have gone back 
to their to their European countries. So it's it's becoming even more important uh, this 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 talent. And and look, the other thing is that I look on my travels around the world at areas that are doing well in fintech, and we always know what Singapore are up to, and they're they're outstanding what they achieve. But I think India is a country to watch. Uh, I think there's something really happening there uh, uh, in India, and it's interesting that you know our, our prime minister is going out there in the next uh, next uh, month or so, um, and um, all the fintech discussions I've had, and talk about financial inclusion and what India's done. I mean, there's always a divide. We've always America and and here in the UK, we've had these landlines. You know, that was a disadvantage to start with the old mobile phone and go straight into that mm. uh, a financial inclusion is what's uh, worked in the favor of potentially africa but certainly uh, africa and india but so i think it's really interesting and you know I, I think there's a lot of talent in india and it wouldn't surprise me if a lot of that talent hopefully uh, comes to the uk as well um so look it, it is an exciting time um and but it's also an exciting time around a green tech and green finance running into our COP26 agenda. Uh, and that's another area that is going to be uh, very important for the world and for the uh, UK as well. Now, um, you've had a bit of uh, competition recently. <laughs> Amsterdam with the with their yeah. exchange. Uh, Berlin has been obviously trying to attract uh, fintechs, uh, as have some other hubs uh, throughout Europe with the sort of in the post-Brexit world. Uh, do, you, do you guys feel like London has to step it up? Even though London's clearly shown leadership in fintech around the world, um, I, I get the feeling that the Khalifa report is sort of saying we can't rest on our laurels. So I agree, we can't rest on our laurels, and the, and, and that is exactly what Ron's saying. Um, but um, the, the, the headlines are sometimes deceptive, uh, and the headlines on Amsterdam is we are no longer in the EU, so of course European share trading is going right. to move to a European country. Right. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, uh, it was a little disappointing in some of the big business papers who made a huge deal of Amsterdam, um, and of course that was the headline, and that's what... People who it's don't know obvious now that you put exactly, it that <laughs> um, and so um, so look. I mean, we we are you know we're very conscious of it. Um, I, I did a North American a virtual trip, sort fourteen different companies, and one of the CEOs of one of the biggest banks in America said, "We love London, we love the UK." And I tell you, the positivity from my trip was enormous. Not one of them said London's not going to stay at your headquarters. Yes. We recognize that uh, your, our, your European friends will chip away, uh, but it doesn't change the fact that London is still for us uh, the, the, the number one center. But, um, but we aren't gonna be complacent. And the other thing I would add is, uh, and, and this came out loud and clear from my, my trip, uh, my virtual trip to North America. People forget, and the Europeans need to remember this, People are in London not just to trade you Europe. London is an international marketplace. Correct. And people yeah. are there to trade globally. We have the language, the time zone, the rule of law. And the funny thing is that people also forget we have an insurance sector that is 27% of the total GDP of the city of London. No other yeah. city in Europe has an insurance sector. No other city in the world has an insurance sector quite like London's. And with cybersecurity, resilience, climate change, it's only getting bigger. 
And of course, it was the Great Fire of 1666 well, that gave birth to the shop. M- much of the uh, London uh, insurance mm. business. And before that was, uh, you know, the the, yeah. the shipping firms of Genoa and so forth. But um, yeah. Uh, you know, being being a, a good futurist means you've got to know some of this uh, past stuff. Well, no, about- I mean the history. The history is part of our culture. Yeah. And you've been to London, and also, as you mentioned, sixteen sixty six and the Great Fire of London. The street names are all still yeah. the same as they were back in sixteen sixty six. And one yeah. of the ones I always thought was quite amusing was that Trump Road goes into Russia Road. <laughs> I'm not going to even get into that. That's a good one. Um, yeah, I've actually uh, described, when I describe some of the future tech, for example, with education, yeah. um, I've said, you know, what about if you had augmented reality glasses? Because Apple's going to release these reportedly next year, um, you know, see-through VR yeah. glasses. And you go down to Monument and, you know, you can put it in 1666 mode and see what it would have been like in London. Amazing. You know, prior, you, you know, you could do that sort of yeah. stuff with the technology now. It's pretty wild. Yeah. But um, uh, so two sort of questions in the time we've got left, Lord Mayor. Yeah. Um, one is... Um, Undoubtedly, you know, the the world has looked to London for the contribution you guys have made in fintech. But how do you think that is now translating into other industries? You mentioned uh, um, life science as an example, but uh, is that being used as a template for other other sectors in in the UK? Uh, very good question. Um, so I think life sciences, in a way, was ahead of fintech because it was before fintech. Um, what's happened is. Um, with 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 fintech because it it, it is so much startups and uh look i'm not an expert in life sciences but you know how much there is in r d and research and spending before you get the product hey look what happened the vaccine is incredible the fastest you know if you and i are having this conversation uh, uh, last year and and now i've had the vaccine uh you know we'd never have believed it well we didn't i didn't know it was we didn't know it was going to be as bad as it it has been COVID 19. so i think it's a longer cycle uh, and there are pockets of expertise around life sciences, whereas fintech it seems to have, have have expanded further around the universe, around the UK. Um, and I think that other areas, I think uh, climate and change and sustainability, renewable energy, are sort of following the same path. Um, well, that was so the second. A, that was the second yeah. piece. I wanted to talk about um, how fintech can help us adapt to climate change. Uh, you know, we we see a lot of uh, NFT activity and other things now, but how do we actually start to get some economic value in the system that isn't just shareholder return? That's actually, you know, carbon uh, output or uh, you know sustainability goals and things like that into sort of market valuations potentially. Um. So I think one can get one can get that because uh, through I mean you know the natural investment I mean this is where finance is so important to 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 twenty fifty and the zero emissions because we aren't going to get there without finance right so when I held the Green Horizon Summit with Mark Carney at the Mansion House we had over ninety countries and uh, attending it was all about finance is the key to getting to twenty fifty uh, because we need but that two things one is. Um, climate change and sustainability investment is going to, one, create jobs, and two, create returns. Uh, But it's doing a good thing, and it's building back better. You've heard that phrase many times, and that's what we're trying to do. Um, I think at the moment, there's a huge amount of investment 
uh, going into projects. But in my travels around the world, whether it's the big sovereign wealth funds, they want to invest in sustainable projects, but they need to find the projects. So there are only so many wind farms or so many solar parks you can invest in. But there are some other companies now popping up, rather like fintech, let's say four or five years ago, popped up. So the startup culture is there. I mean, I'm getting things across my desk constantly about you know here's another another uh, uh, you know whether it's the asset manager who wants to just invest in sustainability we've already got those but more and more people people investing in ESG funds i think it was 71 billion dollars that went in to ESG funds from april to june last year and you know it's over a trillion dollars now so the capital's there we need the projects and there's a bit of a jet time lag uh, rather like after the financial crisis that was really how fintech started because everyone said, we've got to change this. We can't have the big banks dominating mm-hmm. uh, the disruptive technology uh, side of it. And I think that's what's happening a bit uh, on the green side. Uh, and, you know, this COP26 is it's known as the zero emissions COP. And in order to get to zero emissions, we need everyone to be on board. And uh, that is very exciting as far as investment's concerned. But um, Part of it's- there may be... Sorry, part, part of it's transparency, right, is is now we've got the data. We've got the yeah. ability to say um, we can tell as a bank if you're supporting you know, coal plants, for example. Yeah, I agree. Well, look, I mean, it is. It's, and now that we've got the data is going to be is key. But, yeah, it, transparency and the issue is going to be forced and we're going to make it uh, make it work. So it's, look, it is in a very exciting time um, for the UK, particularly around, as you say, those sectors of fintech and, 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 and the green, green agenda as well. So to wrap it up, Lord Mayor, um, you know, we've got listeners from all around the world. If uh, people are still thinking about coming to the UK to, uh, to maybe expand their local startup that they've created offshore, um, where would you suggest they go to learn about uh, making an entrance into UK? Well, I mean, I'm slightly biased because I'm the Lord Mayor of the City of London, uh, but I also recognise that, uh, Brett, uh, the whole of the UK is in pretty good shape and there's huge amounts of talent. Uh, So if uh, London isn't necessarily for some startups, whether it's Belfast, Northern Ireland, Cardiff, uh, Edinburgh and Glasgow, Birmingham, Leeds, or Manchester, and I'll throw Newcastle in there because, as you know, I love the Geordies and uh, it's a great city. They've uh, produced some talent in the past, that's for sure. They have. Yeah. Well, uh, Lord Mayor William Russell, thank you once again for joining us on the show. We really appreciate it. And uh, um, we're very grateful to uh, to have you come on any time you have some new news for us. The Khalifa Report is available online. You can It's uh, KL, K-A-L-I-F-A, Khalifa Review of UK Fintech. Make sure you check it out. Some really interesting stats in there. And, of course, uh, some of our Fintech friends uh, appearing in the notes there. And, uh, yeah, again, great shout out to Ann Bowden and the Starling folks for their uh, unicorn, newly minted unicorn status uh, over the last month or so. Uh, Lord Mayor, thank you again for joining us on Breaking Banks. Great. Thank you very much for having me. Well, guys, that's it for another Breaking Banks this week. Don't forget to check out our back catalogue of over 350 episodes. We have been running every week for almost eight years. Uh, May is our eighth anniversary. Yeah, back May 2013 was when we kicked all this off. So make sure you check it out. We appreciate uh, all of the love and recognition you guys can give us. After all, you know, most of us are putting our time into this uh, for the community 
uh, the fintech community. So thanks again for listening, and we'll be back with more Breaking Banks next week. That's it for this week. If you like the show, make sure to give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform or share it with a friend or share it on social media. We'll see you again next week with more Breaking Banks.